You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. My name is Todd Langworthy, and I am the historian for the town of Pomfret. I'm Tom Flynn from the Center for Inquiry. Hi, I'm Deirdre Sinnott, and I'm the author of The Third Mrs. Galway. My name is Kimberly Hess, and I am the author of the book A Lesser Mortal, The Unexpected Life of Sarah B. Cochran. Good morning, this is Peter Betts. I'm speaking to Bob Cudmore today. I'm going to be talking about... Fourth of July in the little rural capital of the world, uh, Johnstown, New York, in the year 1821. This is a highlights edition of the Historian's Podcast, featuring excerpts from five episodes that were heard online and on the air in 2021. I'm Bob Cudmore. You can learn more about the Historian's Podcast and access hundreds of archived episodes on our website, bobcudmore.com. We're starting off with town historian Todd Langworthy, who has information on the town of Pomfret in western New York, including information on a section of Pomfret called Lilydale, which is a mecca for spiritualists. Spiritualists believe that they can communicate with the dead. Pomfret also was the place where the Women's Christian Temperance Union began and where the first Farmer's Grange was founded after the Civil War. Tom Langworthy says most people in Pomfret call Pomfret by another name. Actually, most people in the area usually don't use the word Pomfret a whole lot, really, because most of the town is encompassed with the village of Fredonia, uh, which lies within uh, the township. So most people refer to our area as Fredonia, I think, for the most part, although there is a lot more to the town than just the village, but uh, that's by far a big a big part of the town. Well, that's, that's interesting, because I know a, a person, I told you I worked for the State University at one time, and I know a person who went to the to SUNY Fredonia, and I said, I'm going to talk to the town historian of Pomfret. And she said, Pomfret? What's Pomfret? You know? yeah. <laughs> That's very often the case. Yeah, a lot of people, they, they um, you know, Pomfret isn't really anything that's really promoted a, a, a lot. I mean, it's more the village of Fredonia and then our surrounding community that's a part of it. Um, also, I think gets kind of tied to Fredonia a little bit, with, with like the exception, say, of like Lilydale, for example, and other things. So, Well, I have a number of... Uh, historical aspects I'd like to discuss with you. Lilydale is one of them, and uh, the concept of spiritualism to agriculture, energy, and uh, and social change. But what kind of started me on the path to getting a hold of someone from Pomfret was I was reading a fairly recent New Yorker article on recent books about spiritualism, talking to, to the dead, and Western New York is big in this movement. One of the places where it's big is a portion, I guess, of the town of Pomfret called Lilydale. What can you tell us about Lilydale? Well, Lilydale, and uh, years back I used to work uh, at Lilydale. I uh, used to work at the gate as a teacher. I, I always would usually have a summer job to keep me out of trouble, and uh, one of my summer jobs was to work at the gate at Lilydale, and people there were always wonderful to me and it's a it's a gated community for many people out of the area that aren't familiar with Lilydale, they might be familiar with chautauqua institution which is not far away from us as well that's about a half hour drive from from fredonia 
And uh, Lilydale is very similar as far as the overall, like, arrangement to uh, Chautauqua Institution. It's a gated community uh, that operates a summer season, very much like uh, Chautauqua, but nowhere near like the scope of what Chautauqua uh, offers. But Lilydale's a gated private community. Um, it was actually the, the founders from Lilydale actually uh, were from a nearby what today would be called a hamlet called Leona, which is just outside of Fredonia. It's almost like a four corners really today, but back in the 19th century was larger. And um, the founders of uh, Lilydale actually are more from the Leona area, which is kind of between Fredonia and what is today Lilydale, and eventually uh, became known as the Lilydale Assembly, as it's known today. But uh, originally, Society of Freethinkers or the Spiritualists was kind of how they were identified in, in the early years. A man by the name of Willard Alden uh, donated uh, some land uh, along Casadega Lake, which is where the assembly is located today, and then eventually more land was purchased. Uh, Willard Alden was one of the early leaders in the group, and then another lady by the name of Marion Skidmore is often very, very much known as kind of one of the founders, really, of Lilydale and was responsible for the early growth uh, of the community um, by getting people uh, to come and speak there. And she was very well known as getting speakers from all over the world, actually, to come and speak at Lilydale women's rights leaders and things from the late 19th century, Susan B. Anthony, people like that, that, that she was able to get to come and speak at Lilydale. It gave it a lot of its early kind of luster. And um, Lilydale was actually growing in the 1870s, 1880s, right around the same time as Chautauqua Institution, um, which is only about 20, 25 minutes away from Lilydale, uh, right around the same time period. And, of course, uh, with Chautauqua Institution, that was a summer camp as well, which is how Lilydale started. That was a summer camp for Sunday school teachers um, founded by Methodists. And uh, I used to be a tour guide over at Chautauqua Institution, so it, it always kind of uh, was very interesting to me how these two communities that are not very far apart kind of grew around the same time period, you know, based on a, you know, kind of a similar model of having this summer camp community um, for people of, of common interest, and um, that's exactly what Lilydale, you know, started as and has become uh, kind of this small gated community that, that is closed in the summer. It's not open to the public uh, unless you pay the gate fee, just like at Chautauqua Institution. And, of course, when the season is over, then the, the gate not manned anymore, and then people just go back and forth through the gate mm. as, as normal. I'm Tom Flynn from the Center for Inquiry. Today we're going to talk about Central New York's often forgotten heritage of radical social reform. We're going to take a trip along the Free Thought Trail. Tom Flynn of the Center for Inquiry tells us about Central New York's Free Thought Trail, including stories about the 19th century's best-known agnostic speaker, a man named Robert Green Ingersoll. Who was he? Robert Green Ingersoll was an attorney, a Civil War hero, and the most popular and controversial American orator back in the golden age of American oratory. Uh, he toured the country for over 30 years, packing the largest theaters of the day on topics from politics to the arts to science to, very often, uh, his views on religion. 
Uh, Ingersoll was an agnostic. He thought that the uh, Christian doctrine of eternal punishment was uh, absolutely perverse, and he became an enormous celebrity in post-Civil War America, going around the country and saying so every chance he got. Uh, he died in 1899, and uh, religious influences were pretty successful in driving his memory underground. Now we call him the, the uh, most uh, uh, interesting American that most people never heard of. Hmm. But, uh, and the one thing I gathered from your uh, material was that his father was a minister, right? Yes, his father, John Ingersoll, was uh, a minister. He was a radical in his own way. He was an abolitionist in the early years of the 19th century when that was very much a minority persuasion, even in the North. And uh, so John Ingersoll was deeply believing, but very much a social radical. And uh, I think the social radical part of that kind of rubbed off onto his son, Robert. Uh, now, people may be curious about the term free thought. It's a term that was well known back in Ingersoll's times. So free thought, one word, means thinking freely and following the evidence wherever it leads, particularly in matters of religion. So most of the atheists and agnostics of the time, including Ingersoll, uh, called themselves free thinkers. But what's the difference between an atheist and an agnostic? An agnostic doesn't know one way or the other uh, whether God exists. Uh, the agnostic believes there isn't enough evidence to form a belief. Uh, the atheist believes that uh, there is sufficient evidence, and the evidence suggests that there isn't a God in a supernatural order. Uh, now, atheists aren't, aren't necessarily certain that there's no God, uh, but at the very least, an atheist thinks there isn't sufficient evidence to believe in a God. The free thought trail you mentioned goes through central uh, New York. And let's stick with the Ingersoll for a moment. He was born in Dresden, which is a little village uh, on Seneca Lake, I believe. Um, what, what do you find when you get there in connection with the Ingersoll? Well, Dresden has a population of 300, which was almost exactly its population in 1833. As you're coming down Route 14, which is one of the principal winery routes on the west shore of Seneca Lake, there's a flashing yellow light. You turn towards the lake, and that turns out to be the main street of this picturesque little village. And right across from the tiny post office in the center of town is this two-story frame house, which is where Ingersoll was born. Uh, it was the parsonage. His father, the minister, was preaching at a Congregationalist church in Dresden back then. And basically, the birthplace has stood as a museum on and off ever since 1921, uh, the organization I represent uh, restored it for the third time, and we've had it continuously open to the public since 1993, uh, except for last year and early this spring because of the pandemic. Ah, so you can go visit it now, right, or can you? Yes, we, uh, we reopened Independence Day weekend, so we're open Saturdays and Sundays from noon to 5. And, of course, the Free Thought Trail is available online 24-7. You can check that out at freethought-trail.org.
org. For example, Robert Green Ingersoll's not buried there in Dresden. He was buried right at Arlington National Cemetery because of uh, his service in the Civil War. That's correct. Uh, actually, the uh, the Ingersoll family left Dresden before baby Robert was a year old. Ingersoll came into his adulthood in Peoria, where he raised the Civil War Regiment, which he commanded as colonel. And in recognition of that service, he's buried in Arlington. You can get more information on the Free Thought Trail in our episode with Tom Flynn, or you can check online freethought-trail.org. Hi, I'm Deirdre Sinnott, and I'm the author of The Third Mrs. Galway. I grew up in Utica, New York, and was always curious about whether the Underground Railroad went through there when I started doing some research, flipping through the back of any book that had anything to do with the Underground Railroad, and finally found Utica listed there, I decided to look into it. And ultimately, all that I wasn't taught when I was in schools in Utica and Clinton, New York, about that history, I've tried to represent in this book so that it gets out to a wider audience. Deirdre Sinnott is author of The Third Mrs. Galway, a historical novel on race relations in the 1830s focusing on Utica, New York. Utica was important in the abolition movement. Why? Well, it's in part because of a couple of people who lived there, who came there, including Reverend Beriah Green, who'd come from the Western College out in Ohio, and was a very dedicated abolitionist. Uh, He and Alvin Stewart, who was a lawyer who came from Cherry Valley, went together to the founding meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. And out of that, that was in 1833, and I think out of that meeting and a further debate that happened in Utica about colonization, the practice of sending free people of color to Liberia, and a debate about colonization versus abolition, Alvin Stewart was really won over to the abolitionist side, and it came out of that, all of that experience that led them to suggest that the founding meeting of a statewide anti-slavery society, that founding meeting be held in Utica. And <clears throat> from there, after, after they announced that meeting, they were under instant barrage of attacks in the, in the papers. It's like a, a waterfall of words, just calling them every name in the, in the book that they could print back then. And uh, they went ahead bravely, had the convention started uh, on Bleecker Street in Utica at the Bleecker Street Presbyterian Church, and then a group of gentlemen of property and standing had been organizing against it. They marched over to the church and disrupted this meeting, and that is what's called the so-called Utica Riot of 1835. But because Garrett Smith, a very rich man from Peterborough, New York, was in the audience, uh, he invited everybody to go to Peterborough the next day and to complete the work of the founding meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society. And in the course of all of that, Smith went from being a very 
big financial contributor to the Colonization Society to being the president of the New York Anti-Slavery Society in 1836. So he made a, a journey in terms of what his political beliefs were about how best to end the end hmm. slavery. I knew of the colonization movement and and uh, knew of abolition, but I didn't realize they were at uh, loggerheads. We recently did a, an interview with uh, Jim Kaplan, who uh, does... Uh, research about New York City area history, and he was discussing Marcus Garvey, the Jamaica-born black leader who also uh, advocated, um, I don't know, black power or black separation, uh, and apparently he had an influence on African colonies. I I do digress, but anyway, I wasn't aware that the, the two were related and that they were two schools of thought about uh, what to do about the issue. Yeah, it was a controversy that I think was hottest right around in that 1830s, 1840s time. And then it kind of cooled down after that because the abolitionists were, uh, while there were never a huge amount, a huge population, a huge percentage of the citizens of the U.S., it was the, the animus between the two groups uh, wasn't covered as much in the newspapers anyway, mm-hmm. as far as I can see. And I think that, you know, the the colony in Liberia had a lot of problems. They had a lot of problems recruiting people, although, the, uh, you know, about 20,000 or more people did emigrate to Liberia. Um, but there was a lot of problems with disease and a lot of problems with the folks who lived in the area called Liberia, attacking the colonists. Deard Brissinnett is author of the historical novel The Third Mrs. Galway. You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or make out a check to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. My name is Kimberly Hess, and I am the author of the book, A Lesser Mortal, The Unexpected Life of Sarah B. Cochran. Kimberly Hess of New Jersey discusses her book, A Lesser Mortal, The Unexpected Life of Sarah Cochran. It turns out that Cochran was a distant relative of Kimberly Hess. Cochran lived in western Pennsylvania, and after her husband and son died, she headed large companies that processed coal and coke, kind of a, a distinction in those days with a woman head of these companies. Cochran also advocated for women's suffrage and was a philanthropist, but in her early life, she was what you'd call a working woman. She grew up as one of many children of a farming family. So she actually became a maid for Jim Cochran, who was the man who pioneered the Connellsville Coke industry in the 19th century. So she was someone who definitely had to work to make ends meet. And while she was a maid for Jim Cochran, she met Jim's son, Philip Cochran, and they happened to fall in love and they decided to get married and that changed her life enormously. Yeah, that, that's really something, quite a, a step up in social standing, right? 
Yes, which I guess poses its own problems in some ways because at that time some people wouldn't necessarily have taken her seriously because she was always going to have been from a poor background. So that would have been an impediment for her in some circles. Now this is happening in western Pennsylvania? Right. Where is it? I mean, where specifically is it? Uh, In Fayette County, which is in the southwest part of Pennsylvania on the West Virginia border. So today it's about an hour's drive south of Pittsburgh near Falling Water and um, Ohio Pile and those areas. Are there coal mines near them? Is that yes. the reason? Yeah. Yes, there were a number of coal mines and also um, coke oven facilities that were being set up in the 1800s in that area. I know coal a little. I mean, I get the concept of coal. We heated, when I was a little boy, the flat we lived in was heated by coal. But what what is coke? And Because that's a big part of what she owned, right, eventually? Right. right. It's a very lucrative part of that business and one that you don't necessarily hear as much about as you do coal. Um, coke is a byproduct of coal. Um, specifically a byproduct of bituminous coal, which is the type of coal that's out in western Pennsylvania. If you heat coal at a couple of thousand degrees for several days in a specific oven, um, you have coke, which is almost pure carbon. And that is an input in the steelmaking process. So it's entirely transparent to consumers. It is... um, basically a product that would have been known within the steel-making circles. And it, it, because it was used in steel at a time when Pittsburgh was growing through the steel industry, it was very lucrative mm-hmm. for people like the Cochrans and other competitors in that area, including Henry Clay Frick. They burn the coke then at, in the making of steel? It would go into that process in order to make steel. Well, let's go but, back to uh, Sarah. She marries uh, Philip Cochran. Uh, who was maybe hadn't taken over the family businesses yet, but they expected that he would. And then they had just one child, which was kind of unusual for that day. Yes. I mean, women were starting to have fewer children by the end of the 19th century, but Sarah was from a family of eight or nine children, and Philip was from a family of five or six children. So certainly one might have expected them to have had six or seven children. And I think the fact that they only had one child influenced how Sarah could use her time later after he passed away. Well, and let's get to that. How did uh, Sarah become the queen of coal? It's from two deaths in her family. Right. In 1899, her husband Philip passed away suddenly. Um, Philip and Sarah had been married for just about 20 years at that time. And he left everything to her in her full charge, care, and control, as he wrote this in his will. She had a portion of the estate that was for herself, and then there was another portion of it that was larger that was going to go to their son, James, two years later when he turned 21. But until then... Sarah was in charge of shepherding all of these businesses that were going to be their sons. Was that also unusual that he gave his wife that uh, power over the, the whole estate? 
It seems unusual. I mean, there are other men of wealth who named attorneys or co-executors with their wives when um, they were writing their wills. And in Philip's will, there is no mention of anyone else being involved in the estate. Kimberly Hess's book about her distant relative is called A Lesser Mortal, The Unexpected Life of Sarah N. Cochran. Leader Herald history columnist Peter Betts has documented how Johnstown celebrated the 4th of July 200 years ago with cannon shots, a parade, and a celebration at a local hotel. When writing their pension applications many decades later, many elderly Revolutionary War veterans sometimes recorded memories of joyful wartime Independence Day celebrations observed while in army camps or on the march. The earliest extant record of a post-war organized Independence Day celebration being held locally dates from exactly 200 years ago in 1821, although there were surely earlier celebrations that were undoubtedly held every year, even though we no longer have a record of it. And the thing you have to kind of remember is at that time, Bob, it literally started at dawn and didn't end until dusk. Thanks to the existence of a faded advertising poster that was is in the uh, Fulton County Historian's Office, dated July 24, 1821, we know that activities occurred in Johnstown that year. It must have been a very exciting day with soldiers and officers from both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 appearing in their best uniforms. And our flag, referred to as our banner of independence, carried by a proud veteran of the Revolutionary War, which unfortunately was not named. The old poster declares, and I quote, the day will be announced by one gun at daybreak. A federal salute will be fired at sunrise and bells will be rung during the firing. So much for sleeping late. The gun referred to was most assuredly a heavy cannon, uh, since an artillery company was present for the occasion. With Johnstown being yet small, this awakening blast would certainly have been heard all over town. The parade, which was referred to as a procession, formed at 10 a.m. at the courthouse. From there, it moved up William Street, turned left on Montgomery, hung another left on Market Street, and went back to the church, no doubt the predecessor of today's St. John's Episcopal Church. Participants marched directly into the church to the tune of a musical group, that's a quote, playing Mm. a piece called Washington's March. I put several people on the trace of this piece of music called Washington's March, and unfortunately, we discovered there were several of them. Ah. So who knows? Who knows which one they were playing? We are informed, and I quote: "The north side of the church will be occupied by the ladies, and the south side by the gentlemen," which ah. was, of course, a common arrangement in those old times. The patriotic exercises inside this earlier St. John's Church included more music, an opening prayer, the reading of the Declaration of Independence, and a concluding prayer. Then it was marching time again. Now a a procession returned from Market to Maine, over Maine, back to William, and then directly to Mr. Johnson's to take part in dinner. 
Now, Mr. Johnson's refers to what was then known as the Johnson House, which was the leading hotel and tavern at that time. Hmm. And the church bell ringers must have probably had a good workout because the program indicates bells were rung continually during this repossession procession to Johnson's, and again, they rang them at sunset for the final cannon salute. During dinner, many toasts were drunk, and very likely many toasters were drunk, too. <laughs> sure. Right. For at this early period in our history, July 4th, Independence Day, was our most important holiday. That's Leader Herald newspaper columnist Peter Betts. You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or make out a check to Bob Cudmore, send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.